Oh, I was about to start singing. You should have left that music. <laughs> Thank you for encouraging us with that song, with the truth of our faithful God who loves us, our faithful Savior who has cleansed us from all unrighteousness through his blood. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, if you will, 2 Corinthians. Now, before we get started this morning, I, I want to talk about um, the transition back to two services. Um, in December, when I was recovering from one of my surgeries, Pastor Tim came up and said, our intention, unless something changes, is to transition back to two services on February 18th after Community Sunday. After February 11th, of course, that's the next Sunday. And that has been our intention, and our staff has been working hard to make those plans and to put everything in place to make that happen. However, I believe something has changed, and what that change is, is frankly, my ongoing health concerns. I uh, battle with different struggles most days, and moving back to two services would be a very difficult thing for me at this time. Uh, this, has been a, this has been a topic of prayer uh, for me for, in my life, in my family's life, in our ministry staff's life, in our personnel committee, and with our church council as well. And all of them agree that if we're not ready to move back to two services at this point, then we need to wait until your body has had more time to heal and to uh, just recover to get better. I did meet with a doctor this week, and he did share uh, some things with me that maybe will help, and I'm praying that there is an immediate help. But unless we see a, a significant um, improvement this week, then friends, we're just not ready. I'm not ready to move back to two services on the 18th. I know some of you have been desiring to make that move, and I want to say I'm sorry. I, I don't want to be the cause for uh, frustration or struggle. I do want to say that as soon as my body is ready, we will make that transition. I do want to say that uh, I'm grateful for the grace that you have, have extended to me, church. You have been so gracious to my family and to me over the course of this past year. So next week, Community Sunday, if you haven't signed up for the luncheon yet, you've got to do that today, okay? But we will very clearly state whether or not we're able to make that transition back yet or not. Um, so you'll know more next week along with the rest of us. I'm praying that we're able to. I'm praying that we're able to because God has made an, an incredible, significant improvement in my body and in my health this week. We'll, we'll see. We'll trust him. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 will be in verses 12 through chapter 2 and verse 4. It was my last semester of college, and as a communications major, I had multiple classes where there were debates or public speaking, but this class was unlike any other of the classes that I had. In this class, not only were we assigned difficult topics that we had to defend, controversial topics that we had to defend. We were also assigned hecklers. We were assigned antagonists. 
Now, there were some rules, but these antagonists were allowed to interrupt us. They were allowed to misconstrue the data. They were allowed to make life very difficult for the person who was actually trying to speak, trying to uh, defend this controversial position. And unlike in today's political scene, we weren't able to call security to come and remove the nuisance from the class. It was a challenging class but I think it was a beneficial class as well. Well, in a sense, the Apostle Paul had some hecklers, some antagonists at the church there in Corinth. These super apostles, as the Apostle Paul likes to call them, or these false apostles, were stirring up trouble. And Paul was, on the, was the recipient of so much of this difficult heckling, so much of this difficult misconstruing of the data. Paul was struggling with the church. The relationship was broken because these leaders had been successful in influencing the church away from the Apostle Paul and his authority. They were questioning his integrity because he changed his travel plans and he was accused of being fickle. It seems that some were misconstruing his letters and they were misconstruing the letters intentionally. They wondered why Paul suffered so much if God was really on his side. They said that he sounded strong in his letters, but then in person he had a, a weak personality. He was kind of like the, the Wizard of Oz persona, right? Strong behind the curtain, but then in person and just kind of weak. They wondered why he didn't carry around letters of recommendation like some of the other speakers, like some of the other leaders did. They held it against him that he would not take money from the church, but then they questioned his integrity as it came to the collection that he was collecting for the saints, the poor Jewish saints in Jerusalem. They questioned whether what he was really doing with that money. Now, other than that, everything was cool there in Corinth, right? They, they were just fine with, with the Apostle Paul. Well, to understand the letter, we need to recognize that Paul here is, in many cases, addressing the critiques that were being charged against him. He was seeking to restore the relationship. He was seeking to restore the, the, um, the brokenness that existed between Paul and the church. And in the passage this morning, Paul is going to address accusations that he lacked integrity because his travel plans changed. Now just think about this. Travel plans change all the time, don't they? Has anyone questioned your integrity because travel plans were changing for you? What this tells us is there's something much bigger going on there at the church in Corinth. There was a spiritual battle taking place that the negativity had so, you know, kind of overflowed into the people that little things were now big deals for so many of the people there. So my goal this morning is to give an overview of the text while drawing out some specific aspects of application. Would you stand as we read together in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? beginning in verse 12 and reading through verse 4 of chapter 2. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. 
For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us a spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call on God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth again. Not that we lorded over you in the faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of them. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we have read your word and as we think about what Paul wrote to this church in crisis, we pray that you would grant us wisdom and understanding, Lord, so that as we look to this, we could make application to our own lives, that we would think seriously about what your word is saying to us today, that we might be changed that we might be people of integrity, that we might be people who worship you and depend on you as the faithful God and live fully for your glory, that we would be people who make decisions not according to the flesh, but make decisions according to the spirit. God, even as we look to you, we pray that your spirit would so invade this room and invade our hearts that we can't but leave here changed, that we'd be different. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, after planting the church in Corinth, Paul spent 18 months in Corinth, and then he went on to Ephesus. Now, after he was in Ephesus for a while, Timothy came back and told Paul that there were some things happening in the church. There were some, there were some developments in the church that weren't so good. So Paul wrote the letter we call 1 Corinthians and sent it on to back to Corinth with Timothy. And, and Timothy was there for a while, but soon he went back to Ephesus and reported to Paul that their things were worse. I mean, things were devolving, and it wasn't just good. There were all sorts of factions, and there were these new leaders that had come into the church, and, and there was a lot of issues there in Corinth. So Paul immediately, abruptly, 
heads to Corinth. Now, this is starting where the issues with Paul's travel plans were becoming an issue with the people. At the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, Paul tells us what his travel plans are going to be, or tells the church what his travel plans are going to be. In chapter 16, beginning in verse 5, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened open for me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul is telling them what his desire is. He's going to be there for a while till Pentecost, and then he's going to come down through Macedonia to Corinth, and he's probably going to spend the winter in Corinth, and then he's going to go back to, to Jerusalem. He's going to go back there to, uh, to the, the, the center of it all, and he's going to, he's going to bring a, a collection. He's going to bring an offering to the impoverished Christians, the impoverished Jewish Christians who are there living in Jerusalem. But now things have changed. Paul gets word that there's trouble in Corinth, so he abandons his previous plan and he heads to Corinth immediately to deal with some of the things that were going on there. Well, that trip is called the painful visit. It's referred to a few different times in chapter 1, verse 23, and in chapter 2 and verse 1. And why was it painful? It was painful because the new leaders who had, who had come into Corinth at the time were, were influencing the church against Paul. In fact, there was an individual, we're going to see this here in a minute, there was an individual who apparently stood up to Paul and who accosted Paul personally. And Paul... Knowing and, and reading the situation, he left there and then went back to Ephesus. There was an issue in Corinth, and it caused Paul to change his travel plans, and now Paul is having to defend his travel plans against the accusations that he was acting with no integrity here. Well, after the painful visit, Paul likely went back to Ephesus then and wrote another letter, a letter called the severe letter or the, the tearful letter, a letter we don't have today, and he sent it to Corinth with Titus. This letter is referred to in chapter 1 and verse 13 and chapter 2 and verse 3. Well, after delivering this letter to Corinth, Titus eventually caught back up with Paul in Macedonia. This is recorded for us in, in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, and he brings some good news, but there's a lot of time that has passed and Paul doesn't know exactly what is happening. Now listen, all of this context plays an important part in our understanding of the text today. Essentially, as we, Paul is asserting his trustworthiness in the face of swirling accusations against his integrity. Why? Because his travel plans changed. Now that seems silly to us, but at the church at this time, it wasn't a silly matter. It was, a, it was the cause for much difficulty because of all the other negativity that was surrounding everything. So in verses 12 through 14, Paul is essentially saying, look, you can trust me. I'm not making my decisions based on earthly wisdom, but I'm making decisions according to the grace of God. In fact, in verse 12, he transitions from the afflictions and the comfort that he's really focused on thus far in the letter to a defense of his ministry saying, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. Now we hear the term boast and we 
automatically and immediately assign negative motives to that term, right? We associate with arrogance, we associate with pride, we associate it with conceit, but that's not how Paul is using the term here. He's using the term really in the sense of confidence. Our confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. And, and, and listen, it's not because of who we are, it's not because of our own excellency, it's because of what God has been doing in our lives. It's because of the grace of God. Paul then is boasting in what the Lord has done and what the Lord is doing. So then to the accusation that Paul is fickle, that he's changing his plans up just by whatever, whatever earthly feeling he has at the moment, Paul's saying, no, look at our track record. Our pattern of behavior is simplicity, it's single-mindedness, it's sincerity, it, it's purity of heart, it's, it's purity of motive. One commentator, George Guthrie, suggests that Paul is telling the church that he has nothing to hide, that there are no shifty motives lurking in the shadows of his actions. He says, our conscience is clear right? The conscience being the, the human faculty of critical self-evaluation is, is clear. We aren't making decisions according to the flesh. We're not changing our plans based on earthly wisdom, simply what is pragmatic or simply what is convenient at the time. No, his travel plans changed because the circumstances changed. And that change was made for spiritual reasons, Friends, there's something for us to consider there. Spiritual factors should influence our decision making. Spiritual factors should influence our decision making. Do we make decisions in life based on spiritual reasons or just out of convenience? Just out of what is easy in the moment or just out of earthly priorities? Let's think about that in terms of our time. Why do we do the things that we do? Why don't we do the things that we choose not to do? What is the basis for investing our time in the ways that we invest our time? Do spiritual factors come into play? How do spiritual factors come into play? So let's just ask, like, how are we serving? How are we loving? How are we investing? How are we engaging in the lives of others? How are we making relational investments in others? Do spiritual priorities, do spiritual factors influence our decision making? Or do other priorities influence our decision making? Simply, what's easy? Or making money? Or are we just about ourselves? Or are we about serving and loving in ways that God would call us to do? How about what we do with our money? Are we spiritually motivated? Or are we driven by selfish, self-centered motives? Now, I'll just say this. Church, so many in this room have a great understanding of what it means to steward faithfully the resources that God has entrusted to you. We see that when it comes to our giving in the budget. We see that when it comes to our missions giving. It, it's amazing. This is, a, this is a very generous and, and I believe for the most part of a church that understands what it means to steward what God has entrusted to us. But if we just look at statistics, it tells us that there are many people in this church who do not 
let spiritual factors influence their decision making when it comes to the use of money. Now, we could be talking about any other thing. We could be talking about where we live, the job that we have, the relationships that we develop, the, 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 the majors that we pursue in college. Do spiritual factors influence our decision making? Does, do we consider, do we pray through what God would have for us, what would be pleasing to God as we make decisions in life? In verses 13 and 14, Paul seems referring to the severe letter that he wrote to the church. Notice what he says here. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will f- fully understand. Just as you did partially understand us, on that, that on that day that of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we boast of you. Likely what he's saying here is that the severe letter comes through Timothy, and these leaders in the church here are misconstruing everything that he had to say. And they're doing it intentionally. It's not just that they're, they're reading into everything. Like, I get it, right? Like you read a letter, you don't know the emotion behind it. You read a text, you don't know the emotion behind it. But they are intentionally misconstruing what Paul had to say. And he says, look, it's clear. What we wrote is what we wrote. It's just there for you to see. And and you're learning, you're growing in understanding, and we pray that you'll continue to grow in understanding so that on that day, we will boast of you, the day of Jesus, we will boast of you, and you will boast of us. Paul is expressing his pride in them for their spiritual growth. And he's, he's saying that I hope that at that day we're going to be moved past all these issues in the church and that you then will also boast in us as those who were helping to foster spiritual growth in you. And by the way, Paul's expressed hope here is legitimate. He understands that growth in Christ is not only for the individual growing, but that growth in Christ should result in making a difference in the lives of others. In other words, when we are growing in Christ, and that's impacting other people as well for the good. Because we're growing in Christ's likeness, and we're seeing life more through the, the lens of, of God's lens, that we too then will begin to make an impact in the life of others as we grow in Christ, right? How do we define discipleship here? Those who are disciples are, are loving like Jesus and living like Jesus and teaching others to do the same. So, so this is changing people. It's changing our families because we are growing in Christ. Yes, we benefit, we're growing in Christ, but not only us, not only us, our growth in Christ actually makes a difference in the world around us. That's the kind of church we wanna be. We wanna be the kind of church that is, is growing in Christ and making a difference in the community, making a difference in the world around us. Our staff has been pleading with God to make us as a staff and to make our church more evangelistic or more willing to invite people to come, more willing to proclaim Christ. Why? Because as people hear the gospel and as people are changed, God is growing them, but also making a difference in the world around us. Now in verses 15 through 22, Paul goes back to addressing his change of plans. So with Paul's emergency visit to Corinth, 
uh, his travel plans changed. And perhaps while Paul was in Corinth then, he told them that he intended to return so they would receive a double blessing and then they could help him as he went back to Jerusalem. Now we might think, well, Paul, you're pretty confident of yourself. Your presence gives them a double blessing now? Well, it's very likely that what Paul had in mind was that uh, they would have another opportunity to give to the collection that he was taking up for the impoverished Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, right? Even in the New Testament, God-centered giving is seen as a blessing for that individual. Paul even quotes Jesus Acts 20, verse 35, when he says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But since the painful visit, Paul's travel plans change again. And this led some to question his integrity. So in verse 17, Paul's saying, yes, my plans change, but it wasn't a fleshly decision. I'm not saying one thing, but meaning another thing. I'm not telling you this, but all along I know that this is what's gonna take place, right? So then in verses 18 through 20, Paul bases his own trustworthiness in the trustworthiness of God. Now, it's a difficult argument to follow, but essentially Paul is saying, look, God is faithful. And his faithfulness is seen primarily in Jesus, who is God's great yes to the world. So follow Paul here. He says, since God is faithful, and since I faithfully spoke God's message to you, I faithfully spoke the word of Christ to you, then you should trust my word about the travel plans as well. Said differently, God keeps his promises, All the covenant promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. And if I am God's spokesman and I told you about all these grand promises, then believe me now in these minor issues. That's what he's saying. Beyond that, in verse 21 and 22, Paul points to God's faithfulness and to his loyalty to his covenant people, implying that if you became God's covenant people through the word of Christ that I spoke to you and we share the same spirit, then believe my word. And then in verses 23 through through chapter two, verse four, Paul clarifies the reason for his change of plans. Right? Previously, he called his own conscience to his witness. It's clear. But now he calls God to be his witness. He says, I didn't come to you because I wanted to spare you another visit. The other visit had gone so poorly, Paul just determined in his own heart, this is not the right thing to do. I'm gonna send a letter instead. He's not avoiding conflict. He just determines that in his own life, in his own ministry, another visit right now would be detrimental or it could be detrimental to the relationship that they had. And he didn't want to risk that because he loved them so much. And in these verses, Paul offers his philosophy of ministry, right? His labors were for their joy. His efforts were so they would treasure Jesus even more that they would treasure Jesus even more than the fleeting joys of the world. And as the church grew to love Christ more, which would lead to greater joy, this would make Paul rejoice all the more as well. So he assures them in verse four, look, I wrote this letter. It wasn't easy, but I wrote this letter because my love for you abounds. And it was, a, it was aimed at helping you to continue in the faith and to be steadfast in the faith. So that's kind of the big picture of 
this section of scripture, okay? So I wanna look at three different things. I wanna point out three different aspects of application that we can glean from these verses. First, living with a clear conscience is essential. Living with a clear conscience is essential. The New Testament refers to the conscience on several occasions. In Hebrews chapter nine, we read earlier, the author suggests that the blood of Jesus cleanses the believer's conscience from dead works to serve the living God. On multiple occasions in the New Testament, the conscience is is spoken of as being vital to living before God. A clear conscience before God is so important. In, in Acts chapter 23, in Hebrews chapter 13, in 1 Peter chapter 3, the clear conscience deals with how we live and how we act. In other words, are we living according to what we say we believe? In t- 1 Timothy chapter 3, we are to have a clear conscience in what we believe. In other words, that it corresponds to truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in 1 John and chapter 3, we are to worship God, have a clear conscience in the way that we worship God and the way that we relate to God. So here's the question, what makes for a clear conscience? What makes for a clear conscience? Well, living your life in the fear of the Lord, right? Living your life in the fear of the Lord. As we adopt this mentality that, that God is over all and that we will live our lives in the fear of the Lord, then we will align our lives accordingly, right? We'll adopt this posture of humility and we'll follow God's will and God's way. So that's the first thing. We adopt this posture and we live by the fear of the Lord. Secondly, it's being motivated by love in our interactions and our dealings with others, right? So we are motivated by love. Why do we do the things that we do? A clear conscience says that we do them because we love people genuinely, because we love them with all that we are. Love motivated Paul. Even when he had to address sin issues, it was motivated by love because he longed for them to experience the full joy that comes through a relationship with God and living with a clear conscience. And friends, there's no joy if you live not with a clear conscience. There's no joy. Of course, no one is perfect. So thirdly, living with a clear conscience involves confession of sin and repentance. Because none of us are perfect and we're all gonna get it wrong at times. Confession of sin and repentance must be part of our lives. Admitting that we're wrong. Admitting when we've sinned and then amending our ways. Now friends, a clear conscience or a good conscience is contrasted in the New Testament with an evil conscience or even a defiled conscience. So as you can imagine, Such a conscience comes through wrong beliefs, through sinful actions, and through sinful motives, and is characterized by people who are not in the faith. So a clear conscience then is essential for you as a believer, in your workplace, in your relationships, In every aspect of your life, we are called to live with a clear conscience because we believe the right things about God and we live according to the way that we believe. And this then leads to 
integrity, and that leads to a life of joy before the Savior. Second, trust God because he is faithful. Trust God because he is faithful. In the middle of his defense of his own integrity, and he gives an explanation of his travel, change in travel plans, he begins this theological discussion about the faithfulness of God. The argument's difficult to follow, right? I mean, he's saying, because God is faithful and I speak for God, then you should be trusting me as well. The connection may not be obvious at first, but what is obvious from this text is that God's faithfulness is clearly seen in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Every promise of God is yes in Christ. All the Old Testament covenants are fulfilled in Christ. And because Jesus lived and died and rose again, we can trust him and sinners have hope. Because Jesus is alive, we can trust God's promises. That he is with us, that he will not forsake us, that he will provide for our needs, that he will always work for our good, and that we too will follow Jesus in resurrection and eternal life. Friends, that's the hope of verses 21 and 22. God has established us with Christ, that he has anointed us, that he has put his seal on us, that he has given us his spirit as a down payment, a, a guarantee of what is to come. And what is to come is our eternal hope. The presence of God forever where sin and sorrow is no more. This is good news. This is the best news. Because everything has been answered in Christ, we can trust that God is fully faithful. Spurgeon writes, God would sooner cease to be than cease to be faithful. God would sooner cease to be than cease to be faithful. Finally, be devoted to the God who saved you. Be devoted to the God who saved you. Not only does the language of verses 21 and 22 speak of God's faithfulness, it also speaks of the fact that we belong to God. Let's look at verses 21 and 22 again. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Friends, that God has anointed us, put his seal on us, and given us his spirit points to ownership. In anointing us, he is giving us an identity. In putting his seal on us, he is marking us out as his own. In giving us his spirit, he is equipping us to live our identity as his child. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, you have been bought with a price, so we are to glorify God in our bodies. We belong to him. He has purchased us. We are blood-bought children of God. As those who belong to him, we're to live for him, and we're to follow his ways, and he's worthy of it all. And here's the good news. Living for him is what leads to most joy in our lives because God's ways are best and God's ways are, ways are right 
and they lead to hope and to peace and joy. And this joy is eternal. It's found in Christ. So when Paul says that he labors together for the joy of the church, his desire is to show the church that Jesus is so much better than anything else. That the joy that's found in him and through him surpasses any earthly thing that we could even imagine. He wants us to raise our affections higher. He wants us to see the joy and the hope that comes through Christ alone. Wants us to see Jesus for all that he is so that we would stop living for the fleeting pleasures of this world, the pleasures that could never satisfy. So church, let's live for the faithful God who loves us perfectly and through whom we have eternal hope. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your kindness and your grace in our lives. Thank you for passages of scripture that challenge us. Mostly we thank you for your faithfulness and we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, all the covenants, and that in him, through his life, death, and resurrection, there is eternal joy, eternal life, and eternal hope. God, would you move in us that we would live lives of integrity with a clear conscience before you as your children and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, as we transition to a time of reflection, I want to encourage you to seek the Lord. Some of you just need to pray right where you are and ask God to be working in your life and through your life. Some of you need to take time to repent of sin. There may be some in here who want to become a member of this church and we'd love to connect with you on how that can happen. There may be some in here who today recognize your sin for the first time and are ready today to turn from it and to put your hope in the Savior who died for you and who rose again. God's at work. Would you stand and respond accordingly?